Good morning, everyone. Good to be here. Good to be here for sure. If you would open up your Bibles to the book of Acts. Today we'll be in chapter 11. Lord willing, we will cover the first 18 verses, which is just going to be a rehearsal of what happened in Acts chapter 10. And Acts chapter 10 is where it began in, in Caesarea, where there was that centurion, an uncircumcised Gentile by the name of Cornelius, who was praying, praying, and the Lord answered his prayer in the form of an angel telling him to go to Joppa to find a man named Peter to bring Peter to him so that he would preach the gospel to him, so that he would tell him words by which he must hear and he and his household would be saved. Peter reluctantly goes um, and even stresses his reluctance to Cornelius himself, saying, you know how unlawful it is for, for me to, to, see, to sit or even to eat with a, an uncircumcised Gentile. But Lord had, the Lord had shown him that um, what he had called clean do not call common. Peter then, you know, gives Cornelius and his household the gospel, and that gospel, you know, the Holy Spirit falls on them, and they're saved in a miraculous way. And it ends with him saying, and at the end of chapter 10, he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then they asked him, they asked Peter to remain with them for some days. So Peter stays there some days, and then we begin in chapter 11. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying. And in a trance, I saw a vision, something like a, a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with these men, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me. And we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Peter who is called Simon. <laughs> and bring Simon who is called Peter. He would declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same Spirit to them as He gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. They glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance 
that leads to life. It's a powerful passage. Who would just let me pray for a minute? Lord, as always, Lord, we need you. And we need you in all things, just so helpless and powerless on our own, Lord. But as times like this, Lord, I feel that need even greater. Lord, maybe, maybe this is your, maybe I should have confidence in your providence knowing that in my um, just weakened and feeble state, Lord, maybe it's less of me and more of you. Lord, I pray that this passage is um, taught in a way that's clear and gets the message that you want across to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So in Acts chapter 11, we're going to have a sermon, Lord willing, titled, When the Good News Isn't Good News. When the good news isn't good news. This chapter, or this passage, really breaks down pretty neatly four ways. Verse 1 is going to give us a setting. Verse 2 and 3, we're going to get the complaint. In verse 4 through 17, we're going to get Peter's response to that complaint. And in verse 18, we get their response to Peter's response. So it's pretty, pretty simple. Verse 1, setting. 2 and 3, the complaint. 4 through 17, Peter answers their complaint. 18, they respond to Peter's answer. So again, we hang up the last chapter, 10, verse 48. They're asking Peter, this is Cornelius and his household, they're asking Peter to remain with them for some days. So how long did Peter stay with the believers in Cornelius' house? We're not told. You know, in in chapter 9, there's that phrase we ran across a couple times, many days. Many days, and that many days phrase there could encompass three years. It encompasses many days, but here, some days. So we're just, just, I guess I would have to default to say this wasn't quite as lengthy of a stay as he had stayed with Simon the Tanner or as Peter or Paul was in um, Damascus. But we don't know how long he was there. But whatever how long he was there, the news of this event outran Peter back to Jerusalem. So we see in verse 1, it's the setting, it's the good news. The apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also received the word of God. That is good news. In a similar fashion, you know, Peter doesn't know what's, you know, the same way that Peter really didn't know what was going on in Caesarea, when he was in Joppa, he really doesn't have any idea what's going on in Jerusalem when he's remaining with Cornelius and his family down in Caesarea. He's clueless about the mood in Jerusalem. Maybe he's anticipating this, possible, or maybe he's just expecting a lot of excitement when he gets back to town. So how is this news received? We're told in verse 2. The good news is received So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him. You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. The good news wasn't good news. We read this where it says the circumcision party. And I know if you're like me, your mind runs to Pharisees and those God-haters and people that were just so dogmatic into their Judaism practices that uh, they actually shunned Jesus himself. But this language, it hits our ears that way. 
But the NIV translates it this way. The circumcised believers. The New American Standard translates it the Jewish believers. And that's correct. This is a group of believers who came to faith out of the strictest cross-section of Judaism. These are believers who are criticizing Peter. You can look in Acts 15. There's a phrase there. We'll be, we'll be here in a couple of months, maybe. Acts 15, verse 5, reads exactly this way. But some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees. So again, when we hear that they belong to the party of the Pharisees, our mind runs to unbelievers, opponents of Christ. But these are believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, they rose up and they said it's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the whole law of Moses. So we have to be able to make this distinction. Or we just see these opponents to Peter here as the lost, as people like Annas and Caiaphas. The Jewish authorities and the religious leaders, they're heavily persecuting the church here in chapter 11. This began back in chapter 8, right? And... Fast forward to chapter 11, they're going to kill the apostle James. So things aren't well between the Jewish authorities and religious leaders and the Christians, the apostles here. But this group of men who was criticizing Peter is believers. We have to get that right. And it says that they criticize him. The legacy translates it, they took issue with him. In that verb tense, it means uh, continual. It was again and again, one after another after another, just constantly criticizing Peter, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them. To be fair, they disapproved of Jesus for doing the exact same thing. Luke 5, verse 30, the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? You see, their issue isn't really so much about baptism. I mean, about the baptism as much as it is about eating. Because eating with them, I, I think we don't equate it the same way. But eating with one another to them was the same as acceptance. Peter's accepting them as they were uncircumcised. The apostles knew about this. You know, we see that in verse 1. The apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. So they knew about it, but they're not the leading critics. The apostles aren't. It's actually this one particular party inside this group of believers that's complaining. John Phillips writes this. Even though the apostles were aware and not leading the leading critics, they make no attempt to defend Peter. Even his brother Andrew remains silent when Peter is attacked, end quote. No one really rushes to his aid. He's left to stand alone in this. And just as a, as a word of caution, typically, I would say if our attitude is that of the religious leaders in Jesus' day, then we're wrong. You know, the same, accus same accusations that are hurled at Peter was hurled at our Lord. We quoted that in Luke 5. We also see in John 9 when the Lord Jesus heals a man who was born blind that the Pharisees are just so, uh, they're just so 
sideways with Jesus that they can't even rejoice at the man for receiving his sight. And here, this confused group of Christians can't even rejoice when Gentiles also receive the word of the Lord. That's terrible, isn't it? <coughs> One more point we can make while we're here. The fact that they're so angry with Peter shows that they had no idea what he was doing in Caesarea. You know, Peter was in Joppa when he received this vision from the Lord and went to Caesarea. They didn't send him down there. He's not sent with their approval and their authority. And if they did, they surely wouldn't have approved of it because they're criticizing him here. They're not happy with what he did. So just be, ca be cautious when you're reading a passage like this that we don't read a system into Scripture. We don't need to read our system into it. This passage is plainly about the gospel going forth even to Gentiles. So we see this setting. They're up in Jerusalem. When Peter got to Jerusalem, they had heard that these Gentiles had received the word of God and they're not happy, or at least a, a cross-section of them are not happy about this thing. So Peter responds to this in beginning in verse 4. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I'll just stop there for a minute. Peter had stood up to the authorities. You know, we've seen this a couple of times. Peter and John stood up to the authorities in Acts 4. is one particular place he does it. And now he's having to stand up to other believers as well. And these men that are criticizing Peter... They have a lot of legalistic baggage. They're godly Christian men that don't have it all figured out. That's what we have to see these men at. These men are criticizing Peter. They're not lost. They're misguided. They're misdirected. They're well-meaning. And to be fair, if the old covenant was still in place, they would be right. They just don't completely comprehend what all Jesus fulfilled. The old covenant is obsolete. They're learning, they're learning the, all the aspects of the new covenant, the law of Christ. <clears throat> but this yoke on their neck, they, they, they haven't been able to, to shake it. And they're just bent on placing it on others as well. But I don't, before we move on, I don't really want to bypass the new and improved Peter we see here. You know, Peter, typically, if you read the Gospels, was not a man who you confronted without hesitation. Just ask Malchus, right? He approached Peter and he loses an ear over the thing. And Peter was a leader. He was, there was no question he's a leader of this Christian church. But even leaders need to be checked. They didn't treat him, by the way, as an infallible pope, the first infallible pope. They challenge him on this. And the new and improved Peter, he doesn't lash out. And this response, it's not a defense. I've seen some people refer to this as a defense, but I want us to see it as past pastoral. This is a real pastoral response. And I say that because, look, why would Peter rake them over the coals for their attitude when just a few days earlier 
he felt the exact same way. He says that in chapter 10, verse 28. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate or even visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. See, Peter had this baggage too, and he was a fisherman. How much more should these religious, the ones who were saved out as religious, strictest sect, you know they've got baggage. But Peter has a shepherd's heart. He understands, I think, where these men are coming from because he was in their shoes just a few short days earlier. Very pastoral. And he takes them, as it says here, step by step, in order. So we'll just start working through this. Verse 5. I was in, Now, Peter's going to give this from his perspective. He's going to give this from his point of view. You know, he really doesn't even mention, as we were told at the beginning of the last chapter, how the Lord answers Cornelius' prayer. He doesn't even mention that. He tells them from his point of view, from his perspective, what happened. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw in a vision something like a great sheep descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. You know, see, Peter here is letting them know that he wrestles with the same prejudice that they have, the same baggage they have. You know, you think it's wrong for me to go eat with these unclean people? Hey, when this vision came, I pushed back too, guys. I pushed back. Nothing unclean or common has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. As soon as the vision was over, three men show up at Simon the Tanner's house looking for Peter. They're sent there with the purpose of fetching Peter. We know this. We went over it. Now, Peter has, has left out a few details in this rehearsal, or he may have shared it with them, and Luke didn't record it. We're not, we're not sure on that. So at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me, to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. So the Spirit told them to go with these uncircumcised Gentile and make no distinction. And then it's almost as if he just says, these six brothers accompanied me. You know, and they're like, whoa, you're the one on trial, Peter, not us here. These six brothers accompanied me and we entered the man's house. It says here the man's house. Naturally, we know who the man is. The man is Cornelius. And, and I'm going to say they know who this man is as well. Peter doesn't name him here. But it's likely that when the report arrived in Jerusalem, it was reported what had happened in the house of Cornelius. 
He was well known. Uh, we know that from the last chapter we're told in 1022 that he was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation. They knew Cornelius by name. So the he here is going to be understood as speaking of Cornelius, and I think Peter's not really speaking in code. He's just, they know who he's speaking of, so he's just using the, the pronoun he, his house, so on. And we entered the man's house, being Cornelius. And he, Cornelius, told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. So now we're told why these men showed up at Simon the Tanner's house looking for Peter. Because this wasn't an impulse on Cornelius' part to just go get him. This was instruction from the angel of the Lord to go get him. Verse 14, we're told why they were instructed to go fetch Peter. For he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved. Future tense. You and all your household. Why was he going to fetch Peter? Because Peter was going to preach to him the gospel. This gospel was going to save his soul. His troubled, troubled soul. Peter says as he began to speak, you know, Another thing, just real quick, you would have to think the way Peter doesn't rehearse the gospel here, that he's, he's speaking to believers. You know, if Peter was speaking to an unbelieving audience, I just have to, to imagine he would have shared the gospel right here yet again. But he says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as it had us at the beginning. The Holy Spirit fell on them the uncircumcised Gentiles, just as it had fell on us at the beginning. There's, there's a, um, about five different verses where we have this language that Peter is really saying, just like us, in the same way as us. We see here, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. In verse 17, the same gift to them as he gave to us. The exact same gift to them as he gave to us. In chapter 10, verse 47, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Chapter 15, verse 8, reads this way, And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. 15, verse 11, but we believe, that we, will be we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ just as they will. What is Peter beginning to understand with this vision and the, Lord, the Holy Spirit falling upon these uncircumcised Gentiles in the same way he fell upon them? He's beginning to see this wall, this barrier that stood between Jew and Gentile come down. And then he moves on in verse 16. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So this is interesting too as well. Where does Peter point them to to explain what happened? The eyewitnesses he took? Does he say, I got six guys around, they all saw this thing happen? Or does he look to his own personal eyewitness testimony? Does he lean on that? 
No, Peter points them to the Word of God and says, this is exactly what Jesus told us would happen. That's what he points them to in verse 16. Then I remembered the Word of the Lord. Not, not just, don't just take my word for it or these six men. Look at what the Word of God said would happen. Peter, he does this again in 2 Peter, by the way, but he always points to Scripture over experience. Always. And if we held the quote-unquote prophets of today by the standard, TBN wouldn't exist. But he points them to the Scripture. He points them to what the Lord had told them prior. And then he says in verse 17, If then God gave the same Spirit to them as He gave to us when we believed... In the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Jew and Gentile alike receive the same Spirit. It's very, very clear here. If then God gave the same Spirit to them, Gentiles, as He gave to us, Jews, when does He give this to them? When we believe. When we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. What else is this teaching us here? That is a gift. It says then that God gave the same gift. The Holy Spirit is a gift of God. It's not earned. It's not merited. It's gifted to us by God. And then he says, who was I to stand in God's way? It kind of reads as if he, he was inclined to. You know, I would have stood in his way if I could stop him, but who was I to stand in God's way. And by default, who are you to stand in God's way? And then verse 18 says, when they heard these things, they fell silent. They glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. When they heard these things, when they heard Peter's response, they fell silent. They had been criticizing Peter over and over and over and over, and they just fell silent, glorifying God, saying to, to themselves and to out loud, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So again, God here is said to have grant, granted repentance, right? Even a change of mind, which is what repentance means, even a change of mind is a gift of God. God grants that change of mind. And notice, too, that it's, they don't see this whole episode with Cornelius and um, his household and his friends that are in Caesarea. They don't see this as the exception. You know, they don't say, then to the household of Cornelius, God has granted repentance. They see this as to the Gentiles. Then to the Gentiles. They see this as the door being flung open. God has granted repentance to the Gentiles. The wall of separation that existed between Jew and Gentile is coming down. And I, I, the, the length of this passage, again, this, this whole narrative began in 10.1. We're running all the way through 11.18. It's going to be rehearsed again in Acts 15. Peter is going to refer to this as a defense of why uh, Gentiles do not need to be circumcised and keep the whole law of Moses, what would it do to them? He saw these, these Gentiles here, you know, they believed, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, 
What would circumcision add to it at that point? So if the length and the detail surrounding this event shows you anything, it should show us the importance of this. This passage right here is going to serve as, as, a, as a pivotal turning point in redemptive history. It really does. The Lord is turning to the Gentiles for a season. Roman talks about this. Roman, you know, Paul in Romans actually writes about this. He's turning to the Gentiles for a season. In Acts 28, if you want to turn there, at the end of this book, Acts 28, Paul is really pointing out the blindness and the hardness of the hearts of the people of, of Israel. And then he has, you know, he says here in verse 25, In disagreeing among them, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers, through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people, talking about the people of Israel, the people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would, and I would heal them. Then in verse 28, we see this turn. We see this move to the Gentiles. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. They will listen because God will open their eyes. He will grant them repentance. He will gift them with the Holy Spirit in the same way that he had gifted the believers here in Acts. But we're reading about Acts 2. So we see this transition from a mainly Jewish salvation to a mainly Gentile salvation. But again, this is, only, this is going to be short-lived. There's, a, there's an expiration date on this. I don't know what it is. There's going to be one last Gentile that's going to be saved, and it's all going to, going to run back to Israel. That's the promise of God in Romans. But a few ways of application here as we wind down. We need to ask ourselves, are we a lot like these believers here who criticize Peter? They didn't rejoice at the good news. And is there prejudice in our evangelism? It's a question we need to ask. You can see in verse 19, and I, just to read it here, this is what Jacob will cover next week. Verse 19, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, that's back in Acts 8, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word, of, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. You see, this, is, this, this whole thing still hadn't come all the way down. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenistics, spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So the Hellenists are really Jews, by the way. They're just Greek-speaking Jews. So they weren't even Jewish enough. You know, they didn't even speak to the Hellenists, you know, we see here when they, when they were scattered. They spoke only to the Jews. The Jews who want to be Jews who are not trying to speak this Greek language. They had nothing to do with the Samaritans. 
You know, Jesus even, the woman at the well said that to Jesus in John 4. For you know that the Jews have nothing to do with us Samaritans. But they did seem to accept the Samaritans' conversion that we read about in, in Acts 8. After all, the Samaritans were circumcised. That's big. So they disliked the Hellenists. They hated the Samaritans. And the Gentiles ranked below that. There's a deep-seated resentment. And now God was granting and gifting them in the same way. And this pill does not go down easy. I hope we really, I don't think we can really comprehend the barrier that existed between Jew and Gentile. You know, Paul says in Ephesians, he calls it a wall of hostility. He says there, Ephesians 2.12, talking to the Gentiles, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. But now, Christ Jesus, who you once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in the ordinances that He might create in Himself a new man, in place of two, so making peace. It might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What Jesus Christ did on the cross was He tore down that wall. And it says here that we are made, we're brought near by the blood of Christ. It kind of made you think, I guess, just on a 80s thing, as a, you know, Gorbachev, tear down this wall. You know, the wall is coming down, but they're not liking it. They're not liking it. And this body of believers that we read about here in Acts 11, confused, well-meaning, misdirected, it's made up, it's made up of all, all people of all sorts with, with major differences. This church we read about here in Acts, I mean, in, in Jerusalem, these people have major, major differences, different backgrounds, and they're coming together, and they're worshiping Jesus together. That's incredible. I don't think we really can appreciate how cross-cultural that early church was. There was massive differences, and yet this had to be an incredible sight to the world around them. When it seems like in many churches today, we all look the same, act the same, dress the same, talk the same, Pull for the same team, with a few exceptions, right? There were some major differences in that early, early church, but yet they were able to put those differences aside because what Jesus had done for them, and they, they were saved by the exact same measures, by the blood of Christ. They were given that same gift that was given to the Jews and Gentiles alike. Another question maybe we could ask is, do we unnecessarily bring baggage into our Christian walk? I think, I think we'd have to admit that we do. Well, do we expect others to carry that same weight? 
Well, maybe if we're going to do that, we should at least imitate Peter and be able to quote a supporting passage. Because if we don't have a verse or passage in context, then maybe it's just simply our scruples. You know, Jesus said this in John 13. He, sa- he starts it. I'm gonna, I'll finish it at the end. But he says, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. Because you will sing hymns and hymns alone. No spiritual songs. All people will know that you're my disciples because you'll preach solely out of the King James. You think I'm being silly with some of this stuff. Uh, Tracy knows I heard it the other day. A guy got up there and said if the NIV is, if the guy preaching the gospel is using the NIV and you, you come to Christ, you bend your knee, you bow, you call upon his name, you're not saved. That's not a joke. Look, guys, we must, we must have a clear, concise, precise gospel. Not, not none of these scruples that we all carry along with us. They need to, we need to be able to at least put them behind us and understand that what Jesus did on the cross tore down any barrier that existed between any uh, racial discrepancy we may have, Jew, Gentile, any, all that was put to death at the cross. And we're all saved in the same way. But here it is. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's the end of the verse. Not all the things we kind of want to throw in there. If you have love for one another. And we do see these, these believers here who were a little bit upset with Peter, criticizing him, taking issue with him. When they're told the rest of the story, they do seem to praise God. And we'll see as this book marches on. It don't come down easy, but that wall does come down and they're able to receive Gentiles into the body of believers and we stand here today as a living testament of that. So praise God for everything He's done. In Jesus' name.